everyone, and welcome to this week's version of the Thursday Talk with a Coder and a Clinician. Uh, this week, I'm joined by our special guest, Kelly Kinker. Kelly has um, been in coding and auditing for the last 18 years. She has a background in physician education and professional coding, which, Kelly, that is how you and I met almost 20 years ago. Yes. So you have a bachelor's degree in health information management, as well as a uh, certified professional coder certification through the American Academy of Professional Coders. Uh, you currently live in Littleton, Colorado, and I'm wearing my Denver Broncos shirt today to kind of do a nod back to my home state of Colorado with your husband and your two daughters. Uh, one of the things I love most about you is you are an avid knitter, but I think the best part is, is I always know when I need a true crime show that I can call you at any time yes. and you have the download on all the true crime shows that are out there. Great suggestions. <laughs> Great suggestions. So Kelly, thanks for joining us today. Um, today, we're actually going to talk about something that, you know, a lot of auditors, educators, administrators always have this kind of in the back of their head. Every year, we get a whole new set of coding guidelines. These coding guidelines come out from a CPT perspective, but also from a diagnosis code perspective. And a lot of times, we sit around the room and we try to come up with plans as auditors and educators. How do we get the messaging across to our physicians? How do we get the messaging across to our coders? And, you know, for 2023, um, I think that this is no, no different. There's a lot of new changes to both the ICD-10 and the CPT code sets for this upcoming year. But today, we're going to talk specifically about ICD-10. <coughs> Excuse me. And the interesting thing is, is here's some statistics about ICD-10 for 2023. We have 1,468 new codes that are being implemented. And that is an increase over 159 from prior years. So this is a big shift in different codes for physicians. Um, one of the problems I think is a lot of groups or a lot of clinicians don't understand the importance of their diagnosis coding and how that diagnosis code actually links to insurance reimbursement. And right now what we are seeing, at least what I've seen on my end, and Kelly, you can probably speak to a little bit on your end as well, is we're seeing more and more groups are um, experiencing denials due to incorrect diagnosis codes, not being able to prove medical, medical necessity, um, specificity, not being significant enough that it's not meeting those insurance carrier algorithms that are out there right now. And since, since it's becoming more important for us to make sure that providers and coders are up to date on all of these coding changes, I thought it would be really good for us to have a, a conversation today on, you know, why is this important? What are some ways that we can get some buy-in and some engagement with not only the physicians, but also coders? Because, you know, coders sometimes can be their own worst enemy and be yeah. resistant to the to all the changes because, I mean, let's get real. We're in healthcare. There's a change, it seems like, every other week. 
Yep. So one of the things I wanted to kind of start with is, <coughs> excuse me, is, um, you know, we are seeing, and I, I wanted to just kind of pull this up. Here is the new ICD-10 coding guidelines. Look at the thickness on this baby. <laughs> it's probably, oh, uh, three quarters of an inch thick. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on this year. Uh, in 2023, what we are seeing the biggest changes to is documentation guidelines and ordering guidelines for body mass index. Um, depth of non-pressure ulcers, the different stages for pressure ulcers, uh, coma scale. We haven't seen that the coma scale um, has been updated for a really long time. And so now there's specific diagnosis coding around coma scale. Uh, the NIH stroke scale has made an appearance in our ICD-10 guidelines this year. Social determinants of health. That is a huge one, especially for a lot of outpatient physician groups that are dealing with cultural differences, language barriers, um, poverty levels. So they've really kind of revamped the social determinants of health for 2023. We also have some changes with what codes require laterality. Uh, some blood alcohol level changes and um, under immunized under immunized status. Say that five times fast. I know, right? <laughs> it's a tongue twister. So, with all these documentation changes, Kelly, what is the best way that you have um, identified to communicate these changes with coders and clinicians? Because I know you've been an auditor educator for many, many years. Um, I think one of the biggest things is, as coders, we have to know all of these changes or be aware of all of them, but it's a little different for our providers. Um, I think it's really important to make sure that we're just talking to them about the ones that are specific to them uh -huh. and not overwhelming them with all 1,400 new codes. Um, so some helpful ways to get that across, and it all depends on your physician's learning style, but um, they, you could do cheat sheets, you can do webinars, and I think it all depends on the type of provider that you have. Um, because if you give them too, too much information, it's not going to be retained. And I think another big thing, especially for the providers who are on EMRs, um, is getting their preference lists set up with the new codes correctly, because they could be choosing, like you mentioned earlier, unspecified codes when they could have a much more specified um, code with the new codes that were added. It's interesting that you talk about preference lists and making sure that they're accurate. Uh, two weeks ago, I was talking to a provider because um, they were looking at some of the denials that were coming across and the denials that were coming across were for dentists, dental work, like caries, uh, cavities. And I, and I kept saying to this provider, I said, um, you have nothing to do with the mouth. Why, why do, why do all of your patients who have this particular condition have a primary diagnosis of dental caries? <laughs> I'm like, this makes no sense to me. So we started looking at his preference list 
and um, named it incorrectly. And oh, so the goodness. preference list was named incorrectly. And so as they were typing in what they thought the condition was, it was actually pulling up the wrong diagnosis code. Wow. Yeah. So it's really important that when you set up your preference list, you actually make sure that the narrative for your preference list matches up with the code. Yep. But you're right. With all of these different changes, providers shouldn't be expected to remember the 1400 codes. I will be honest with you. Remember the good old days of the ICD-9 when we had all of those codes remembered? We yes. knew that 401.9 was hypertension. <laughs> um, we, I probably still have some of these memorized. But <laughs> with the implementation of ICD-10, it makes it, it makes it really difficult to memorize, you know, 50,000 different diagnosis codes. Yep. And so even as a coder, I don't know how I'm going to be able to remember these 1400 plus right. diagnosis changes. Yeah. So what I thought was really interesting with 2023 is that there's a couple sections of the code book that really kind of went through a major overhaul. One of them is dementia and the dementia section, um, really, there's a lot of new rules, um, documentation requirements that are required for justifying a patient with dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, what I thought was interesting is we now have um, dementia codes that are based off of the severity. Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe? There's also... Um, some new codes for vascular dementia. Um, there's new codes for frontal lobe dementia. We've got vascular dementia with um, psychotic disturbances, with mood disturbances, with anxiety. So we've really gone through kind of a little bit more um, specificity in this section because as, as you probably are aware, working in the healthcare industry, there's a lot of varying degrees of dementia. We've got uh -huh. Alzheimer's dementia. We have vascular dementia. We have frontal lobe dementia. We have anxiety triggered dementia. Uh, it's no cookie cutter, one size fits all. And so I think this year it's really good for us to be able to start to differentiate that for the insurance carrier. But in all honesty, with all of these new codes and stuff, what are the things that the provider needs to make sure that they document so their diagnosis codes actually reflect part of the services that they're providing? Um. I think it's important because it's interesting because um, I see a lot of the unspecified dementia and I've seen providers who actually do write like severe dementia. Um, they'll get specific on the type, but I, it's important to get specific on the type, but the issue comes when that is transferred over into the claim information and what gets submitted. So they may have in their documentation severe dementia, but if in their preference list, like I said before, if the top choice is dementia unspecified, they're just going to choose that one because it's a, you know, coverall. Um, 
but I think it's really important that they document it, but it's also just as important to get it across to um, the claim information that what type of uh, dementia it is, because that's one of the reasons why, you know, they're getting this specific on these codes is because Mm -hmm. there are so many different types of dementia that the insurance companies really want to know, you know, how severe is your patient? Um, So in reality, it may seem like it's harder for the provider, but in reality it's actually helping them. Um, Especially when they have those severe cases, um, different types of dementia um, with the agitation and the, the uh, mood disorders, it's important for the insurance companies to know the severity of their patient. Yeah, it's it's interesting because looking at the way that the EMRs are set up and a provider goes in to pick a diagnosis code, they click on the diagnosis, they'll type in dementia, but they'll give it a huge list of options and providers don't like to scroll through. Right. So a lot of times they just pick the very first one. Well, you and I both know that very first code that pops up is always the unspecified right. one. And so... I think, you know, from what I am hearing from you, the biggest education point that auditors and educators and even administrators can get out to these physicians is especially around some of these new codes that require additional specificity like staging or the type um, or additional details, like is it associated with something else, that they really need to get their preference list updated. Mm-hmm for the codes that they are seeing, because those levels of specificity are going to be key. Yeah. And in reality, their preference list kind of becomes their cheat sheet. Um, It's basically their cheat sheet on their EMR. And then of course, for the providers who don't have an EMR, you know, cheat sheets are super helpful to see, okay, I see a lot of patients that have this. Um, That's really helpful for them as well. Yeah. The other one that I wanted to kind of just um, talk about briefly is the social determinants of health. I think this is actually a very timely update to the ICD-10 codebook because, you know, with the 2021 outpatient um, ENM changes, now you have an option for moderate risk of the patient due to social determinants of health. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, this week I was having a conversation with, with a clinician and we were talking about social determinants of health and how, you know, when you document, you have to indicate what those social determinants of health are. And if you document it in your note, you also need to connect that additional piece with the insurance carrier so they understand that, hey, This is not necessarily um, a straightforward patient. And the example that I gave uh, this, this group of providers I was speaking to was, okay, here you have a patient that is coming into you who is Haitian. Mm -hmm. They have been in the U S for six months. There's huge cultural disconnects between our culture and theirs, they don't have access or they haven't had access to healthcare in the past. They don't have necessarily the funding to be able to get all the healthcare that they need here because they are uh, immigrant status. 
And so how do you explain that to the insurance carrier when, say, they come in and they have something like hypertension? Well, essential hypertension, looking at it, you go, huh, that's probably a, a lower level, straightforward, right. you know, as long as the patient's taking their medication, they're not having some sort of, um, you know, exacerbation, uh, it's probably a low level. And so we, we spent some time talking about, you know, the challenges that they're facing with certain populations, even though it seems like it's a straightforward diagnosis to you and I, but the overall risk of the patient is an elevated risk because of X, Y, and Z. Right. And so I think it's so timely that these additional diagnosis codes come out for social determinants of health. Yeah. We've got now codes for transportation insecurity. We have a code for financial insecurity, a material hardship. Um, what I thought was interesting in the material hard hardship, some of the examples that they give are unable to obtain adequate child care, hmm. unable to obtain adequate utilities, unable to take care, unable to obtain basic needs to take care of yourself. That is classified under the new um, Z59.87 for material hardship. And so I thought that that was kind of interesting that we're getting more specific with these codes. And I honestly, and I don't know what how you're feeling about this, but I honestly feel like the reason why they're expanding this is so we can connect those medical decision-making pieces together with what's going on with the patient. Yeah. Um, it always brings me back because I remember when I first started coding, they always said that your diagnosis codes tell a story. So essentially these alphanumeric characters are telling the story of the patient taking from this narrative that the, the provider may have in their MDM and their note and putting it for pretty much all the world to see because they use these, you know, these codes to find out, you know, statistics okay. and everything. And so I think it's really important because these providers, like you said, they may have hypertension, but they have these three other things going on in their life that essentially determines the provider's medical decision-making, which is in my mind, one of the most important things, um, of the encounter. So, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're prescribing medication to a patient and they don't have the financial means or the funds to be able to get that medication, the probability that you're going to be seeing them back in your office and managing a higher risk is that. going to be, that's okay. It's going to be a lot, a lot greater. Yes. So, you know, I, I, I really think that um, this is actually a really good part of the ICD-10 code changes because I think it helps us connect that CPT piece a little bit more for those insurance carriers. Yes, I agree. Um, you know, there's a lot of guidelines in here that have changed, and and we don't have time to go through every single one of these. Um, but what I think is what I think is really interesting is, you know, you and I've both been exposed to hospital administrators. We've both been exposed to group administrators. 
And, you know, typically the mindset is you need to educate my providers. They need to know all of these code changes. Um, you know, we have both sat in front of physicians where their eyes glaze over and they just look at us and they're like, you want us to do what? Um, how pertinent is it for these groups, these auditors, these educators, these administrators to tailor their education around diagnosis coding to provider, speci provider specialty? Yeah. Um, I think that is the key because there, like you said, there's way too many codes for them to have to look at. I think if you tailor the training and the cheat sheets to the codes that will directly affect that provider. Um, and you can find that out as, you know, if you have, you can run reports to see what are the most uh, uh, common codes that the providers bill out in that group or that specific provider mm -hmm. and tailor um, your education or your information sharing to that provider to what they're already billing saying, you know what, you I use dementia a lot because I see dementia a lot in my work, but yeah. um, you do dementia a lot. Now you have these specific, um, I can't even say it, specificity. There we go. Um, you can get specific because you now have codes to match what you are documenting. Um, and if providers are currently not documenting that specific, if they're just saying dementia, it also is a great opportunity for you to say, you know what? I'm sure this patient may have a specific, it looks like they have this other thing going on. Um, these might be able to tie together for you if that's what you think based on your medical decision-making, they are tied together. Um, so I think just um, honing it down to specifics for the provider um, is really important and letting you know, administrators know, no, they don't need to know every single code change, just the ones that they are doing the most. Um, so they don't have to think about it as much. Yeah. So recommendations for any groups that are struggling to get their teams educated. Um, I'm hearing webinars. Webinars are key. I know um, I've done several webinars where I've got providers that attend, and then I've got other webinars where no provider attends. And so I think, you know, ultimately your education is going to be dependent on getting that buy-in from the providers because you can do webinars, you can do cheat sheets, you can do tips and tricks. But at the end of the day, if there's not that administrative push to make this a priority for the physicians, everything that we put into place to help them is going to be null and void. Yeah. Um, and I do think, you know, it is important because you think sometimes that you're not reaching these providers, but, um, it's also important to do different avenues like the tips and tricks thing. Um, someone may learn better just reading that way, or if you do a webinar, they may not be on it, but they may listen later. But, um, the key is to, I guess, kind of meet them where they're at. Um, and if they'd rather you send, you know, this may seem unrealistic, especially if you have lots of providers, but send them uh, a text saying, hey, you use this code a lot. Here's here's some new ones that may work for you. It all depends on the provider. 
Um, but giving and maybe multiple avenues like the webinars, tips and tricks, cheat sheets, um, maybe a little card. Um, it's important to kind of meet them where they're at. So you can just, you can't obviously change their habits, um, mm. but you can at least help them make better new ones. I, I liked one thing that you said, send a text and say, hey, you use these diagnosis codes. Here's some ones that matter that may better be suited. And this, I think, is, you know, we talk a lot, um, Dr. Hunley and I talk a lot about merging the clinical world with the business side of medicine and having the coder interact with the clinician a little bit more. This is an excellent opportunity, coders, excellent opportunity administrators for you to help bridge that gap between the two. So it's not the physician over here and the coder over here. They're working in tandem together. And if, if the coders could pivot and change their workflow a little bit to help educate the providers as some of these new codes are coming along and, and having that history of knowing what they do day in and day out, I think the impact would be a little bit more with the physician because they would feel more as if you are a partner with them trying to help guide them and, um, you know, give them tips and tricks to say, hey, listen, like you said, you use a lot of unspecified dementia. In 2023, we have all of these new codes. Um, you, you may want to use some of these to help you get more specific around the care that you're actually doing with the patient. Yep, absolutely. So in closing, Kelly, thank you so much for joining today. Sure. I'm so grateful that you were able to take some time out to spend with me. Um, but, you know, final closing remarks that you might have around making sure that you can educate your physicians and your coders appropriately on these new guideline changes. Um, I would just say that, and I've said this before, um, everyone's learning is different. Um, just be patient with coders around you. Be patient with the providers. Um, we all know this stuff changes every single year. Um, so it's important. Um, but if you can't get a hold of a provider because, you know, you want to share some new codes with them, don't beat your head, you know, for it. It's, um, they will get to know it eventually, but, um, it's really important just to make sure they know the specifics. Um, don't go tell them, okay, there's 1400 new codes. Um, there's tell them there's some that are really important for you in your documentation. I think that's the most important thing. So you don't overwhelm them with all the work they already have to do. Yeah. Excellent advice. Well, thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to having the rest of you join us in the future. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. -bye.